I scrutinize my own music and my thinking to really question myself that why am I doing this project and not the other project? So I turned down quite a lot of projects. And then I think that as a result, the music I produce from that moment onward, all the three pieces on the album, I think they are pretty much the result of that search, that three and a half years searching for identity or my voice. I think that without that, I would possibly still writing pieces to sound like somebody else. Sick. 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 Sick of the sycophantic singing. Sick of every afternoon's compulsory games. Hello and welcome to Classical Music Now, the podcast by Nerd Ice Collective. I am your host, Joe Chesterman March, and today we're talking to Raymond Yu, or Ray as his friends call him. He has a new CD out on Delphian Records called The World Was Once All Miracle, with three pieces on it. The first being The London Citizen Exceedingly Injured, which is Ray's conclusion of his PhD, which captures the overloading of influences from his heritage. Then there's The World Was Once All Miracle, which sets text by Anthony Burgess, our good friend here at The Collective. And that's sung by Roderick Williams with excellent diction. Really amazing. As a singer myself, I'm always very impressed when you can sound lyrical and clear at the same time. And the second piece on the album is Symphony. And that was performed live with the BBC Symphony Orchestra, which explores Raymond's identity. And we talk quite a bit about that in this podcast as well. Other topics include how to get your foot on the ladder as a self-trained composer, just like Ray. Ray actually talks about the old like closed shop structure musical festivals used to have where they'd talk to the publishers without getting anyone else involved, which I didn't know about actually. Um, he says why he's not sure you'd ever get a publisher and also why Raymond never wrote the Cantonese pop songs that inspired him from a young age. So you can check out the link to the CD in the show notes and all the music played in this episode is from that CD as well. So off we go. Here is Raymond Yu. Well, thanks so much for coming on the podcast to, to talk to me, Raymond. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me here. It's been kind of weird because like, we've been like friends on Facebook since we bumped into each other at the Anthony Burgess Foundation like three years ago. But yeah. um, it was only recently I ever heard your voice because I was listening to you <laughs> on a different podcast. And I was like, oh, yeah, I don't, I don't actually know how Ray sounds at all. <laughs> <laughs> now you do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I wonder if we could just start right at the beginning, if you could just talk a little bit about how you got into composing and that initial part of the journey. Yeah. Um, well, I started playing the piano when I was four, um, but I didn't really enjoy it. Um, so when I was about 12, I just kind of told my parents that I didn't want to do it because I didn't really see the point of it. Um, and then I came to the UK to do my boarding school. And then it was during then I joined a choir and I started playing the piano again. So about the same time that I realized that I, I like improvising on the piano and I started kind of putting things down on paper, the things that I improvise. And that was the kind of the first inkling of composing in, in some way. But I didn't really start properly composing until when I started my undergrad study at Imperial College and I was doing engineering. And then when I'm not studying, I kind of just get some manuscript paper and just start writing things down and I find a piano and then just improvise. Um, that's how I pretty much I started. And then so I just kind of kept going 
uh, even when I finish studying and then get into working IT. Mm. And so it, a lot of it was improvisation based at the beginning. Then it was. I think. I think. I mean, in the beginning, I didn't quite know what what's it meant to to be composing. I just write down all the improvisation and try to kind of make them work by kind of trying to connect them together. Mm. So that's how I started. But but you know, for quite a few years, I didn't really finish a single piece. I just have tons and tons of improvisation sketches, and, but there's no things that I came out of it. So Yeah. And, and between that period of like being at Imperial College doing engineering and mm. kind of getting your pieces performed, I'm really interested in that particular period of time because... Am I right in saying you, you weren't actually getting any pieces performed? So you had this kind of, you're writing everything down, but then you just didn't know how any of it sounded. Exactly. I think, I think a lot of the young composers, they, they started, they just have to know the notion of composing by writing it, but didn't really quite understand to, to actually know what it sounds like, I think. So that was pretty much how I started it. Um, and then around the, the time of 1998, and I was told about the... The SPNM, the Society of Promotion of New Music, which is now the Sound of Music. Um, so they do this yearly shortlist, and then my friend encouraged me to send some of my composition there. Uh, so I sent it to them, and then around about 1999, I got my first piece being shortlisted on the shortlist there. And also, I was applying for some of the kind of workshop they host, and then one of my pieces, my first piece, got chosen. And then it was a workshop in 1999. Um, so I think that was the first time I actually heard my music being played. And it was quite a strange feeling. You didn't have any kind of like relationships building up with like musicians or other composers before that point then? Not at all, because oh, right. I, I didn't really kind of went to kind of university to study music or on conservatory. So I didn't really know any professional musicians who would play my music. Mm. I mean, that's a great advertisement for Sound of Music, isn't it? If they <laughs> kickstart your career. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> and am I, am I right in saying that you uh, you uh, you had a relationship with a, an American conductor composer at the time as well? Yes, I did. I uh, It was a time that when I kind of just wandering into music shop all the time and buying CDs just to discover new music. And then I think one evening, it's quite late at night, and when they still used to have Tower Records in Piccadilly. So I just go in there just browsing and I found this really pretty looking cover of a CD. And I just said, oh, this is quite nice. And I bought it. And I went home, I listened to it. I thought, wow, this is amazing. Who is this person? <laughs> and then um, his name was Lucas Foss. And then I find out that he was still alive. And I just have this kind of desire to want to meet him. And then just completely by chance, I met a lady uh, in London that she used to work for Lucas Foss. Ah. So she somehow that she just got me in touch with him. So I wrote to him and he wrote back. Uh, and as he was coming to London to perform uh, the following year, so we kind of kept the correspondence. And then eventually I met him at the airport. So we kind of spent about four or five days in London. Um, so we kind of just built a kind of, relationship, kind of friendship slash mentorship. Mm. Um, so we just kind of got kept correspondence and, and about one or two years later, I wrote this piece for a, uh, competition f that hosted by SPNM, which I didn't get through to the final, but I just sent a piece to Lucas Force and say that, what, can you kind of give me some feedback on the piece? 
and then he just wrote back said I'm going to perform it this summer <laughs> so it was I think that was the, the kind of the, the nicest compliment you can get really. yeah yeah <laughs> no comments <laughs> just that's no comment, yeah yeah exactly so is he kind of like your first teacher in a way would you say I think he he was pretty much yeah in mm. in, in 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 the strict sense I think in, in a way that he kind of he was someone who was a professional composer who gave me feedback and and also helped me to to get my music play as well so mm. that was that was that was quite something and also considering the fact that this is the person that wasn't just anybody he was a good friend with Leonard Bernstein for fifty years and then he played under the conduct under the baton of Stravinsky. Which is kind of quite nice to, yeah. to, to know that knowledge. Yeah. And that's so serendipitous, isn't it? Like that you just mm. found the CD and that was, it really, you know, it was a huge impact. It was. I think yeah. it was just, just pure chance. I, I do sometimes believe that, you know, all things that kind of things that do happen by chance. Um, and in the kind of least expecting way. Yeah. I think your, your career certainly, it has that flavor to it. <laughs> it does. Yeah. <laughs> partly because of these applying to competitions because there's that element of of chance and like uh, mm. circumstance there as well to my mind they don't have such a strong standing because you know this whole thing about objectivity and, and subjectivity of, of them but they they seem to be quite important to your career all the way up to now uh, i wouldn't say competition is is something that i could have wholehide regard for I think because mm. in a way that I, I just think that I didn't really win any competition in my life um, but just little, little opportunities like that kind of came up every now and then I think those are the one more important for me I think I when when I was kind of self-taught and composing and I just applied for several competitions I, I didn't really go anywhere and so at the end I just particularly annoying fact was that some of the competition they actually charge you entry fee yeah so after doing one or two i said this is no point because it just feels like you're throwing money down the drain mm, yeah. um and and then and then and i just kind of focusing on trying to find people who musician who will appreciate my music mm. um and they will play and program it right yeah because you, you um you, you've won like a few prizes with like the royal is it the royal philharmonic society recently so you're still uh, applying to them no, it's, it's, I, th I think those are different because it was, they are being nominated. So I was oh, nominated okay. twice for the uh, Royal Philharmonic Society Music mm -hmm. Awards. Um, so I didn't really apply for them per se. And, mm -hmm. and same for the British Compos Composer Award. I think they were they was being nominated. Um, but when when I'm kind of looking back, my my quote unquote student days as a as a Budding composers and and looking at all the competitions. I mean, after applying for two or three and then didn't go anywhere, I just kind of I find it a bit disheartening. Mm. And then I realized that it wasn't really for me. That's, that wasn't the right route for me to to go by. Yeah, because you don't get any feedback either, do you? So it's, no, yeah, no, you don't. It's really rough, really rough. Yeah, but you you developed more relationships with people who perform your work. Then presumably, is is one of those um, uh, Ozalene Della Martinez? Was she quite early on? Yeah, she was um, Chachi. Um, she was the founder of uh, the Ensemble Montano. And um, in fact, she chose one of my pieces on the SPNM shortlisted. And so she programmed that piece for a uh, BBC Radio Free, a BBC Singers concert. Um, so that was my first radio broadcast. And then she really liked my music. And then we kind of kept on working together several more times. 
um, and eventually that I wrote a piece for her ensemble called Northwest Wind. That is the piece that won me the British Composer Award in 2010. So I have this kind of really nice working relationship with her. Yeah. And she kind of gave you a bit of a, a leg up in some sense then, because you could hear it. Oh, well, absolutely. I think, I think especially for someone who was completely unknown, and then she had the kind of faith to in, in a, a young composer mm. that nobody had heard of. It was it's an incredible platform for, for someone to kind of hear my music. And actually, particularly for me to hear my music as well. It was, it was a, a lovely learning experience as well. And is that a relationship you've kept going today? Yes, we do. I, in fact, I, I wrote to her a few weeks ago just to say thank you. I sent her a copy of the CD right. and just to say that, you know, if it wasn't you, I possibly won't be. You mm. won't be holding this disc. Yeah. Oh, that's lovely. <laughs> I, I, I suppose it's, 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 it's quite important that um, for composers to kind of build this kind of uh, friendships mm. and, and trust with the performers they work with. Uh, and in fact, I, I, most of my vocal music, I I work I wrote them for uh, specific singers because I know their voice and I know how how they perform and I know what they can do. It's it's, it's always quite nice to know your instrument in order to write to to get the best out of it. Yeah, it can sometimes feel a bit like abstract the idea of oh you've got the composer and then you've got the uh, performers or the ensemble. But often it's it's really it's two people who know each other, whether they're like up in the organisation or they're the conductor. It's it's, it's usually yeah. essentially friends. Like I I once read when I was uh, uh, kind of earlier in my career that the this idea that you know when you're networking in the music industry is it's more like that you're making friends because you wouldn't really want to work with someone who's you can't get on with, you know? <laughs> no, exactly not. I think I think it was it's quite a an important thing for me that. I really want to work with people that I trust and 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 people that I I do not feel bad if I kind of give, give criticism mm. and vice versa because that's the only way to get the best out of your work. Um, that if if that person is doing something not very good or if you're doing some, something not very good, I want the other person to tell me mm. that things are not going right. So let's let's look at the problem. Yeah. Uh, rather than just kind of hush hush not to deal with it I think <laughs> yeah. it's very important that sounds um, like a very healthy relationship I think if it's not just about work relationship I think it's a lot of relationship outside work as well I think it's, it's you have to be quite honest about issues mm. and you have to kind of point them out and deal with them before it get out of hand yeah yeah on that picture is, is, it, is her name Odelino, am I? Is that Odelino? Yeah, Odelino. That's yeah. right. On yeah. that picture of Odelino, um, you said that without her belief, encouragement, and support, my fight against a certain condescending snobbery in the classical world would have been so much harder. I wonder if you could expand on that. Sorry. <laughs> uh, I might as well just kind of come over. I think it was for several years when I was introduced to people. Uh, most people are quite nice about it, and because because when when I was introduced to people, that I was introduced as the self-taught composer, mm. so people just don't really mind it. But I think one thing that some occasion that really stuck in my mind, particularly a certain um, a head of a composition department of a certain institute, which I should not name, <laughs> and I was introduced to him, and then he just. When he heard the word self-taught, he just gave me the most kind of 
kind of disparaging <laughs> look, and then he just turned away. He said, "Okay," and it just kind of made me feel that I'm not quite sure what that look was for, but mm. but you kind of get the sense that people just don't really take you seriously because you were self-taught. Mm. Um, so I think that that kind of really stuck in my mind, uh, and also in a way that it's, it it was I think less so these days, but. That the whole kind of classical music arena structure in a very archaic way that you know the ensemble or programmer of festival they will go to publishers so that if 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 the publisher in kind of introduce kind of give the ideas to those festivals they will take them on but therefore a lot of unpublished composer will just completely bypass that yeah that system um, so, especially for 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 someone who is like a completely untaught, unheard of composer, that we will we would never get anywhere. Mm. I think that 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 system slowly kind of dissolving. I think. Okay. Um, but I think it would take a while to in order to completely dismantle that. Mm. Do you have more kind um, of heads of programming in festivals now? Is that more the case? I think I think in a way that people like Charlie who actually believe in my music and kind of program it and so get my music heard on the radio, uh, on recordings that really kind of help people to discover me, rather than going through the route of uh, publishers. Mm. Are you still self-published? Yes, indeed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Would you sign to a publisher? Not quite sure. Mm. Um, I I've heard uh, several horror stories um, <laughs> about publishers, so I I think I'm a bit too much of a control freak. Mm, right. to 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 rely on a publisher yeah it's a very like mysterious world isn't it because it, it almost feels like this closed box yeah um, i suppose like every aspect of the arts where you get signed to a record label or you get a um, representative as a writer it always seems like the dream because it's you can finally trust someone else to do all these opportunity findings yeah. for you but it's it's a two-way street isn't it i think not even two-way street i think i think <laughs> I think the root of the the, the role of um, publisher have changed so much since the sixties that when in the, back in the days when you have the big publisher they publish these big names so they do everything with them kind of push the name mm. forward and but that has slowly changed I don't think that the publisher do as much for the composers these days right. yeah um, and plus I mean there was the day back in the days that when there was no software so. Mm. Composer rely a lot on publishers to 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 produce the parts and material, but now that we have all the software, that composers can can do it themselves. Mm. So it's making it much easier to 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 do things, to 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 source material, to orchestras and performance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really, um, I suppose that the word democratizing gets thrown around a lot by by tech companies, but in in that sense, <laughs> it is like yeah. Yeah. I think it, I think it, it has really. Mm, yeah. So, and also there were there were composers who don't even write scores. They write if they're electronic composers. They, there's a completely different kind of area. Mm. And we look at how how many electronic composers actually represent by publishers. I don't think there's many. What well, so? What do you mean by electronic composers? So people who actually write electronic music. Oh, so, right. Yeah. Electronic yeah. acoustic yes. music. That's what yeah. I meant. So they, a lot of them don't really need the kind of material for performance. Yeah. Or yeah. If, even if they do, they possibly can produce them themselves anyway. Mm. And yeah, you've not got the whole parts issue so much. Not so much, I don't yeah. think. Yeah, that's interesting. I've not really thought of that. 
it's it's funny that I always find electroacoustic music this really interesting testing ground for a thought mm. because it serves at this weird cross section of classical music structures and then just everything else, all the other types of music in the world. And you're like, well, what is a composer? Okay, well, they write for a certain ensemble on a bit like electroacoustics kind of. Is that like art music? What is, yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> but those is, is kind of, I, I like those kind of area because when you, when you have all this very hard defined wall mm. or kind of boundaries of the, of the genre, so to speak, and people find it easier to kind of look at the, the mechanism of how things work. But when, when they kind of collide and the wall kind of slowly breaking down, and when you have like jazz improvisers who work with orchestra and, and things like that, it's society, okay, how do you define it? How, how things will actually work? Mm. And when you have, when you have acoustic composers working with live performers and then step into the field of pop, so how, how do you actually define it? Where, where, who, is, who is going to be the publishers and then how do they actually deal with resource and things like that? I think it's fascinating. Yeah, and can they still be reviewed with the same respect as if they hadn't like crossed the the divide, as it were? Yeah, as well? yeah, yeah. Have you ever thought about using electronics in your work? Not so much, I suppose, because I, I've, I've been working in Nazi for so long. <laughs> I've just, I've just, <laughs> just decided the, the desire to, to walk away from it. Yeah, I I think even though that my I do get inspired a lot by uh, acoustic music. I, I don't really have the desire to use electronic elements in my music just yet. Mm. Um, because I, I suppose I'm really fascinated by performers on stage. It's almost like I, I really like going to the theatre to, to, to experience that tension that things could go wrong. Yeah. That, that rather than just electronic, I think, I think electronic is a bit too safe for me. Mm. <laughs> in a way, this, everything kind of, is kind of preset. Yeah, and 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 live performances that because things are kind of holding so tight because it could completely collapse any moment. I just love the tension. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, especially with like trickier works where it really could fall apart. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I suppose for for you as a, as a conductor and 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 you kind of it kind of exciting and it's scary at the same time. But this, I think that's actually kind of keep us doing what we do is is because that excitement mm, yeah. was so unique. And it's a really tricky balance in conducting. Certainly, I mean, in the work that I've done where it's it's not always, you don't always have like quite enough time for certain pieces. And you've got this balance of, do I, do I say, no, just go for it. And there'll be some wrong notes, but the wrong notes will be very obvious. Or do I say, okay, well, we'll keep all the right notes and, you know, we'll lose some of like the dynamics or we'll lose some of the articulation and those kind of details. And people will think it kind of sounds better, but it might not be as like exciting because it's not, you know, it's not quite on edge. It's not quite like everyone like giving it their all. It would depend on the kind of composers that we're talking about. Hmm. Because I think some composers that are so obsessed about notation, but they kind of lose sight of the fact that a score is only a set of instruction. Hmm. So you, 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 a composer is writing a score in a sense you get they're giving he's giving the, the, the player a set of instruction how and when to do certain things so they still rely on the realization of their actions so that when when come to the performance the performer just just follow the score so to speak and just do as close as they could from the instruction from the composers and it could be a mistake in the composer's part <laughs> that he didn't get the dynamics right mm, yeah. or the tempo right mm. 
or the tempo doesn't really work in the acoustic space or whatever. So I think I think it's in a way that the score is not it's not so called a bible. It's just only something that people work from, and then the conductor and the performers have to find a way to 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 make this instruction work together in that particular space in that particular moment. So I I, I think that you know when 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 people is, when I go to rehearsal and uh, the performers say that we can't really do this speed and we can't do all the dynamics. I said, well, we can just take some of them out. Mm. And in, at, at the end of the day, it's, it's the impression of the piece that really matter, not not 100% correct. It, it could quite easily that when you come across a performance that everything is kind of perfect, dynamics, everything perfect, but it doesn't have the kind of spontaneous, mm. the, the, the feeling of it, which I find is, is, is less compelling than a performance that with errors, but vivid. This episode of Classical Music Now is supported by Dorico, the advanced music notation software from Steinberg. Dorico is designed to save you time. Whether you are a composer or a ranger, a teacher or a student, working in music engraving and publishing or producing music for media, it gives you the tools to produce beautiful scores faster than any other tool, so you can spend less time in front of your computer and more time doing what you love, making music. Dorico is available in three versions, including Dorico SE, which is completely free to download and use. Check it out today at steinberg.net slash Dorico, or use the link in the description to help out the podcast and show them that you came from us. Have you ever um, experimented with like graphic scores or um, kind of instructional scores? I did a little bit. Hmm. And well, I think, I think that was... Um... It was fun because because I only did it for for myself and and, and performers that I I trust okay. so yeah. they can they they kind of know what I intend to do but I think I've learned a lot from Lucas Force because he was a champion of improvisation okay. like non jazz improvisation yeah. so so he was a he started his whole movement about improvisation in America in the sixties as well mm. so um, so I I kind of studied a lot of his. Uh, graphic score, kind of instruction scores, mm. and, and, and get to understand what is the best way to to get the best out of the performance mm. by by not often notating it. So in your score, I'm not seeing any of your scores, do you, do you sometimes write, you know, like getting faster, then getting slower rather than notating like, you know, quintuplets to uh, fours and threes and the twos? Yes, I do. Yeah, I do okay. in a way that... It depends, and particularly some of the music that involves in kind of theatre stuff as well, which I, I kind of leave a lot of room for improvisations mm. and, and freedom. And I think one of my huge interests in musical theatre, and then when I look at all the kind of musical and and see how flexible that the score could be. Yeah. And then and then all the composers they they will write uh, safety bars. Yeah. And and then. And then to kind of allow people to move around on stage to to get the actions work on stage and still have the music keep going on. I think in a way that is is so useful. I think that that kind of technique is lacking a lot in the kind of what we call the kind of concert mm. or operas. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. We do these collaborations with spoken word artists, and often in that you get these safety bars emerging, or mm. or you'll get like a cut and then come in on this word and all that kind of stuff, and it's. Yeah, it's good. It's more dynamic, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. But it's it's in a sense that when when you look at the score, compare a score to a, a say a, a play script. Mm. So the time in a play script is not is notated in a different way because it just 
a space. Yeah. <laughs> so it, we trust the instinct of the performers to to understand how long is that space is, mm. and 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 people react in a, in a real way rather than being dictated by the score. So I think I've learned quite a lot by by imitating what they do in in a play script. Yeah, like you don't have like a bracket over a line saying three seconds. <laughs> no. Yeah. <laughs> or three. I, I, sometimes I do that. I'll, I'll put a bracket, say three to ten seconds. Okay. <laughs> so it's just like, whenever. Yeah. Yeah. Three so to it, ten it, seconds. It, that's it, quite a wide range. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, anything can happen. So I think it's, it's kind of quite nice to kind of just give them a sense of flexibility of maneuver around the time. Mm. Yeah. And it kind of it allows you to. I think it's a little bit like um, teaching, you know, if you, if you kind of keep the like pupils or kids or whatever in like quite a strict um, regimen, you say, oh, we're doing this now, we're doing this now, we're doing this now. Then as a pupil, you do switch off a bit and you're like, oh, I'm doing this now, I'm doing this now. Whereas if you're saying, okay, this is the challenge, you go figure it out. It involves your brain in a different way. So as a performer, if you're seeing this music and it says three to 10 seconds, you're suddenly having to think on top of, you know, on top of the other stuff. You're thinking, okay, I need to switch on that kind of more improvisational, compositional part of my brain that thinks, well, musically, how long should I be holding this on for, you know? I was commissioned to write a piece for um, Qin, which is a, a very ancient Chinese instrument, have seven strings. Okay. But it's almost like Guqin, but it's much quieter. So it's an instrument that people use to for meditation. Hmm. And I was commissioned to write a piece for that and a string quartet. And I did some research about the, the literature of those music. And I just find it's the whole background of those music is so fascinating. And and I don't really want to compose a piece for that. I really want to kind of dig deeper into the idea and the philosophy of those music. But the whole premises of the piece is the soloist will play the piece as he usually does, just improvise around that melody. And then the string quartet have to improvise around them with a given material. Hmm. But there's no time signature as such. So each of the string quartet parts will have the solo melody in there somewhere. And there was a lot of kind of cue lines to say that do that, start doing that when, when that happens in the solo part. And what was interesting that when we get to the rehearsal, the master decided to drop a few bars and, and drop a few notes in there. <laughs> Luckily, I, I kind of knew that that would happen because I've heard several recordings of the same piece. They, they're all different from each other. Mm. So I, I wrote a score in a way that just kind of followed the line, whatever happened and trying to catch up with it. So in a way that the music doesn't really have a kind of fixed way of being played. So everything's kind of in flux. But it was, I think it was the most interesting experience with the string quartet. They said to me that they have never listened so carefully in, in a rehearsal, mm. in the live, because they're so used to counting it. So they don't, they don't, they don't listen, they, they, they count. But this is this completely turned everything upside down. So there's no counting as such you really have to look at the, the music and kind of listen to the solo part and try to follow it and try to make sense out of the interaction between you and the solos and then each other. Mm. So I, I find that there was a very interesting way of breaking down notation and, and look at location differently. Be effect my own and I 
symphony you you kind of collide a lot of different worlds together you know you've got the kind of the disco movement and you've got you've got other bits um in there as well is in in your own improvisation do you mix genres or, or does it tend to be kind of like a jazz or in in a classical world i think i, I mix everything yeah when i improvise i just play whatever comes to my mind i think mm. i mean a lot of the music i play improvise is kind of american songbook jazz standard but i i every now and then i throw in some classical pieces in there and i throw in a lot of cantonese pop music in there mm-hmm. and kind of japanese and animation music in there All right, and i just okay. I, there, there, was, there was there was no kind of right or wrong but whatever came to my mind i just i just see what i can do with them so yeah well um is it is it joe hitashi is he the studio ghibli composer give it yeah yeah so yeah uh, uh, some of those as well but i mean i am talking about even earlier mm. so so um so i think i think there's for me i just don't really see the genre as such i really the only way i see music is whether the music is good or bad yeah yeah i i have to ask you i know you, like your roots are kind of in cantonese pop in a way were you not tempted to like write Cantonese pop music? I actually thought about it. Yeah. But but I, I, I don't know if I personally I find a canvas of writing for an orchestra, writing for kind of Western music ensemble is the, the canvas I'm most comfortable with, I think. Mm. Um and even though that some of the some of the music I put in my song cycle and and even the symphony is is like a pastiche of of certain genre of music, but I, I feel more comfortable with with that canvas because I think I, I like I'm a very structural thinker, mm. so I, I like think about big structure. So I mean, and and therefore I, I like to write pieces that have a certain kind of scope and 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 kind of twists and turns, and and writing pop music for me maybe not challenging enough right yeah yeah i'm gonna I'm change my statement tomorrow but <laughs> <laughs> have you ever have you ever tried it like have you ever written some songs i worked with a friend years ago trying to write a pop song i think we kind of gave up after halfway through it <laughs> i think we i think i think we both kind of just lost interest in writing it but i right. mean if give it a chance i'll definitely do it again Maybe in, there's like an alternative Raymond in a different universe where you like started off with pop music instead and then you took that to places the orchestra's gone rather than the other <laughs> way around. you got Maybe. these like epic prog rock songs. <laughs> Why not? I think I think it's always fascinating that when every now and then when I when I give um, talks to students, I, I usually start with canto pop or, or kind of pop. But some of the music I really love listening to is, is kind of 1970s disco music or 1980s mm. because I grew up in the 80s. My teenage year was in the 80s. So I kind of grew up a lot with the the kind of early Madonna, Stoic mm. and Waterman, which is like Rick Astley, Kylie Minogue, right. Jason Donovan, those kind of huge, kind of highly produced, mm. very manufactured music but at the same time if you sit down and just play down the piano and work out the 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 the, the structure of the song they're really really sophisticated right really yeah i i, I always find it um fascinating that and i've just all interested i when i when i get bored i sit down on the piano and just play things i wanted to play so i i think I, one night i was sitting down and just playing um uh some of the songs from kylie's second album um i think it's, um never too late Right, and then just to work out, I thought it was quite simple. I said, like, "No, actually, this is really difficult. I mean, the 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 progression is quite unusual." 
And then I, I kind of and, and I start playing more of the song from the same album and then and the other album. I realized a lot of the Stop Aiken and Waterman songs are they're not very straightforward. They're they're quite interesting. They're unusual progression songs. Mm. So I and then but in a way that when we listen to them, we only hear the kind of very highly produced gloss mm. version of it, and we don't really kind of see the the the, the kind of deeper sophistication of the song. But in a way that I find, I find it's 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 the there's the charm of it because you don't you don't really want to analyze the song when you hear it. You just mm. want to hear it and you want to dance to it. But when you yeah. sit down and think about it, it's my god, this is actually quite sophisticated stuff. <laughs> I think in a way that <clears throat> to some extent I I'd like to think of my music as like that because mm. when when I tell when when you hear my my music mostly that you kind of feel that it's kind of quite tuneful, quite slightly frivolous in a sense. It's very kind of highly produced but mm. if I tell people that most of my music are actually serialist based oh right okay people wouldn't quite believe that but I can actually kind of give them an analysis because I love quotations so when I when I use a quotation I, I work the quotations, the quotations back into kind of serialist way so I, I can kind of deconstruct the quotation I want to use and turn it into kind of a tone row or mm. some kind of road in some way, and then kind of do some kind of partitioning of, of the pitch classes. Um, so in a way, I kind of manufactured my music from material that I want to borrow, but kind of turned it into something else, and then kind of and then kind of reverse and kind of reverse engineering. Mm. In a way, yeah. so in and a you, way, you I, get around the copyright issue that way as well. If you turn it into a twelve channel row, <laughs> exactly. So you you you, you can you can sue me because everything I, I, look, I point my finger to the tone row. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's got twelve tones in it. Everything has twelve tones. Exactly. <laughs> so, so for example, for example, in in the London Citizen, exceedingly injured, I kind of turned the Elgar mm. tune from Cocaine Overture it back, kind of back and forth, kind of look at the retrograde and then inversion, and I, and and I create a whole set of like a matrix of the, all the uh, a set of tones. Mm. Um, it's all based on the Elgar tune, but it's when when you kind of draw material out of it, it doesn't resemble anything like that. Yeah, yeah. And same same apply to to the symphony. It's actually based on a Scarlatti sonata. Okay. Um, but I deconstruct it, so all the material I use is it filtered from the tone roll or the, the matrix that I use. Um, there there are remnants of it, but you know, a lot of material came from the kind of atonal kind of serialist thinking. Yeah, and and is the idea that some of that character comes through in the piece, or is it just a way of like this is my starting point as an idea, but musically I I don't think it will actually come across, but it's a starting point creatively. They do because because if if the serious materials came from the original, in some way it will maintain the kind of uh, interval relationship, mm. in some way, so that you kind of have that kind of sequence of intervals will kind of remain in the matrix somewhere. So if if you if you remember where it came from, you can always pick them back. Right. So you can hear it when you're listening to your piece. You can, and somehow that you know when I'm gonna choose material from the matrix, I know exactly where where things are. So I can I can intentionally choose the material mm. to kind of remind that the, the 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 listener or myself that the material actually came from that tonal material. Raised and poised, I I I have raised. And poised a fiddle. (laughs) 
which will you lend it is with utter music's model. Yeah, because um, Stravinsky comes up in your uh, your doctorate, doesn't he? Yeah, he did. I was, uh, I well, I, I attempted to tackle it. I got 25 pages in. It's very readable, I have to say, for a PhD thesis. <laughs> it's quite enjoyable. Um, but it's, yeah, it's really interesting. It's all about finding your own identity mm. in, in music and in composition and this idea of connecting to a, a history. Obviously, I, I don't know the ending because I only got 25 pages in out of 100. To be continued. Yeah. <laughs> but I... I, I... I suppose that when I when I decided to do my PhD, I was hitting a crisis because I finished writing my opera, the original Chinese Conjurer, mm. and I was completely burnt out, so I couldn't do any composing for two years. So when I I was still working in IT, and by about two thousand and eight, I joined the Arizo Panufnik scheme. So I I kind of gave me the, the the reason to start composing again, but I was still struggling. But I just I think I came to the point that I realized that I was, up to that point, I kind of almost like a magpie, just randomly picking ideas and, and, and material for the purpose of composing. I didn't really follow a certain kind of route or I didn't really understand my personality as such. So I think I came to the point that it was, it was a kind of moment of crisis that, you know, who I was and then why am I writing music? Why am I actually writing this piece and not the other one? Mm. Um, but luckily, I, I started, there was a trend in my music, completely subconscious, that in the opera and then the piece before the called Night Shanghai, I was interested in kind of early Chinese pop music. So I kind of sensed there was something in there. So I really kind of asked, is this something to do with my heritage? A big, as composer, a, a Chinese composer was born and lived in a British colony for 17 years. So in the sense that it's a very kind of mixed up kind of background. Mm. So I, I wonder has something to do with that. Um so I kind of just did a sit I kinda of sat down and have a think about what other composers face the similar issues and I thought maybe that was a um, interesting research. But originally I didn't actually intend to do a PhD, I actually just wanted to do a master. Just kinda of give myself two years to to kind of take a break from IT and then do some composing and then I was persuaded to do a PhD by Guildhall so oh, okay. So, so the research came into the picture yeah because presumably you wanted to you know get some composition training some, some teaching yeah with Julian Anderson so yeah but they managed to sway you they managed to pull your arm <laughs> yeah they say is that, oh by the way we are having this new doctorate program which I didn't look at it I said okay let me have a look <laughs> uh, and, and I just it was just sold after that Okay. Um, and I think it was it was it was the best thing that I've ever done because it really kind of cleared my head and kind of really looking at my music. And I I think that all the music I've written so from that moment onward have a sense of kind of unity or at least a bit more than it used to. Mm. Um, and then I become more critical about 
the the way I compose, the the, the material that I use, the subject matter I look into, mm. because I think they they all contribute to to the issues of heritage, and the, the sense of identity. And so, at the end of your PhD, did you feel that connecting with your heritage, like the musical heritage of of Hong Kong, of China, was was that part of like the answer to that crisis? But the question is that what is that heritage? Sure. It was because because that heritage. I mean. There was a distinction between uh, ethnomusicologists' look, way of looking at heritage and a composer, because <clears throat> ethnomusicology is, is all kind of very evidence-based. So they, they would want to do the research, they want to kind of do all the writing up and then have to label everything. Composers don't. It's all in the head. So composers, in a way that we create a boundary in our head and what what consider to be our heritage. And also in a, in a sense that the heritage is not it's not stable. It's not. It's not set in stone. I, I love the kind of metaphor that came to me from Ligeti by way of the Canadian composers of uh, the Nibulian. He kind of told me. We told a story that he was studying with um, with Ligeti, and then in the class he kind of mentioned the idea that of this kind of a web of time and space, very Doctor Whoish, um, <laughs> and then that we all kind of exist on this plane of time and space that. Around us, there was a lot of big influences kind of bobbling upside down that create these kind of waves, like Bach is here, Beethoven is there, Bach, okay. um, Mozart yeah. is there. So they kind of created kind of waves, so we all kind of influenced by it. Mm. Um, but some of us, it's got a bit closer to them. Some of us have got further away from it. So, and for me, it's, it's, they are, they're, they're big enough to kind of have this influence on me, so I'm kind of bobbling in the frequency, a, a combination of those frequencies. But at the same time, I have this source of canto pop, Mm. And and jazz kind of bobbling around behind me, so I kind of take the influence from them as well. So my 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 musical personality is is a combination of this, in relation to to my distance with them, and that distance can always change, because if if I want to look into certain parts of my heritage, I possibly move further away from the Western heritage and get closer to the Chinese heritage. So I want to look at the, the kind of. Guzheng and all the traditional Chinese music influence on my music, I, I get myself a bit closer to them. I've, I've removed myself away from the kind of Western influence. But you cannot deny that those Western influences were always bobbling from afar and you always pick them up. Mm. But it's just about for each work you do or, or, or each, each period that you, you work and how you, how you switch them or kind of turn them down and tone up the other one. So it's, it's the same. If you think about how do you actually use the model to to look at Sorinsky, it's, it's a very clear idea that you know when in, in early periods it's all kind of very Russian. So he, he's he's very close to the Russian source, but later on he can move away from it and he get closer to to kind of neoclassical uh, uh, Bach and all this music. And then later on he kind of be, remove himself. He moves shift himself closer to the kind of atonal Schoenberg school, mm-hmm. and. But you know, it's it's the same thing applied to all of us, really. We we can't escape the reality that you know we get influenced by things around us or before us. And obviously, your position in that is is particularly like fascinating and and unique in that like you're from Hong Kong, which was a British colony, but obviously was originally Chinese, and now like Hong Kong's being like grabbed back by the Chinese culturally. Yeah. And it's like it's like the definition of a country in flux in that sense. Yeah. And it's, I think, kind of losing its kind of identity as well. Right. And I think, I think the trouble is that with the, 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 the identity of the Hong Kong identity has always been so volatile. Mm. Because I think, I think a lot of 
Hong Kongers like myself, it's we were struggling to understand exactly which one is stronger. Yeah. Or our our way of thinking, possibly influenced by the way the political situations is as well. So it's it's always kind of tricky to have that identity kind of written black and white on a piece of paper because it's just it it kind of as soon as you write it down, it's it's already out of fashion. And this is the same for composers, I think, in a way that we we it will be a very boring thing to do if you kind of stay de- stay in the same identity all the time. We'll be writing the same same kind of music over and over again. And I think I think I, I get bored very easily. So <laughs> for each of my piece, I, I kind of tend to shift myself a little bit in a different position, where in in that kind of time space continuum. Mm. So that I, I, I it allows me to to uh, look at material and look at idea and and subject matter differently. So that I, I don't I don't write the same piece over and over again. You've had this whole run of album release and like interviews and like press around that, and if that was me, I'd I'd find it quite hard to start differentiating between the fact that you really have been exploring your heritage and your influences and that the pieces on the album are really a result of that and that exploration. But also, if you say the same thing so many times, it starts to sound like a story. You know, it's that, mm. it's kind of like a narrative and like, how much is that a good story that I'm able to tell people and how is, much is that still where I'm at as a composer now? But yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I think it's true in some way, but I think what we've been talking about so far is, is not really related to the, the album as such because it's actually more about the music just before that. Yeah. So, I mean, and London Citizen is, is kind of the result of my PhD. The, the London Citizen is the last piece of my PhD portfolio. So, in a way, that was almost like a submission. This, therefore, that, that piece is kind of so overloaded mm. with, with details and, and, and information. There was like billions of quotations in there somewhere. Um but it's it's just a, a depiction of of what my res- what what my conclusion of my PhD is is that you know my heritage is so confused and so diverse <laughs> and so multi layer, so I want to write I want to write an orchestral piece kind of to capture that that kind of overloading. I think that three and a half years was crucial for me because until that point I was a self taught composer I didn't really have the kind of sense of structure, mm. and for the PhD for me that I really kind of self impose a. Uh, I scrutinize my own music and my thinking to really question myself that why am I doing this project and not the other project. So I turned down quite a lot of projects. And then I think that as a result, the music I produce from that moment onward, all the three pieces on the album, I think they are pretty much the result of that search, mm. that three and a half years searching for identity or my voice. I think that without that, I would possibly still writing pieces that sound like somebody else. I think that was that was interesting that because I'm doing some supervisions in in Cambridge and one of the things that I keep repeating to my students is that you know when when they bring works to me and I will ask them so so where are you in this piece so why why is this piece written by you by not not by somebody else so they have to kind of justify that certain element of the piece is actually them not copying another composers mm. so I think I think the pitch do really make me do that because because even even for myself when i when i wrote a piece when i uh, wrote a, a draft i asked myself am i just imitating somebody else if it is i'll chuck it away and then kind of re- restart again because i don't really want to i don't really want to write a piece could be could have been written by somebody else because otherwise why don't i just be that person i let the person do it for me i want my music to carry something which is unique meaning my experience 
that I, I lived in Hong Kong, I lived here for, for a long time. So that, that transitions that to have living in two places um, and then to witness what's happening back home and witness what's happening here. And then being a Chinese living in the UK, the experience I have, the, the kind of racism and all these things that kind of experience is quite unique to me. So I want to kind of engage all this idea into the music. I think that composers need to think a bit harder, you know, why, why are they writing that piece of music? Why can't it be written by somebody else? It's a good question because it's a hard question. So, but yeah. also, I think that, I think that's the question that people don't really get taught. People no, don't, get, yeah. don't get challenged. Yeah. I mean, in 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 colleges, in in especially when you're doing undergrad, you're too busy learning the craft, learning the the the, the, the all the techniques and stuff, and then and sometimes you're too busy kind of imitating composers you like. Mm. So it's 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 fine. If you, it's good to learn through imitation, but I think that also composer, young composer particularly, you need to be to be challenged and to, to think in, in, in a way that why, why are you even writing this? Mm. And I think that's what's so great about symphony is that it's so, like, I don't know how the disco movement sounds cohesive. <laughs> it's a real feat that like, you've got all these things that meld into each other or are kind of separate elements, really. They, they don't meld at all. They kind of, they feel like they should be disparate. But then over the course of the piece, it's like, yeah, this is a, this is a Raymond Yu piece. Like it doesn't sound like lots of hodgepodge things. It really sounds like, oh, Ray, like he likes writing for symphony and that's his medium and he likes writing these things. And that's, it all seems to come from one place, which gives it this consistency, which you feel on paper can't be possible. <laughs> and like the personal stories it tells as well, you know, like the, like the, the poem about HIV and then the recontextualization of the last, as it, um, John Donne, home yeah. at the end yeah. you can't necessarily hear all the words while you're yeah, listening to it but when you read it afterwards and you're thinking like wow like that's that poem is not about the AIDS epidemic but like after you put it after the previous poem it's, it's really really powerful it's because because the John that in that context it turned into almost a eulogy mm. it's really yeah, yeah. because that's the whole idea is that that movement actually part, part, partly inspired by my experience that you know I have friends who sadly being affected by the uh, epidemic, but also by the really famous, um, I think it's called uh, the, I think the David uh, Bailey. Oh yeah, pictures yeah. Uh, used by Benetton in 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 the eighties. So it's just that the family of 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 um, people have AIDS, spending the last moment in 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 the deathbed. I think that that really image kind of quite strong in my head. Mm. But it's it's just the music in, on its own that that John Donne poem or even the setting itself doesn't carry that unless you kind of hear it just right after the tom gun and then the intermezzo that the whole thing is that it all makes sense i think the tom gun setting was one of the most challenging thing because it's really long you know it's a lot of words to get in. It's, it's it's so many notes in there as well and then also you know i don't work with a lyricist so i don't write a pop song as such i don't i don't i don't work in a team so i set the poem which is which is kind of established text Mm. So how do you actually dress it up as a disco song? Yeah, but not quite disco song. So it's <laughs> it's 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 one of the hardest thing I ever done. I think. Yeah, but it sounds great. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Look, it's been really nice to talk to you, Raymond. I think we should leave it there. I don't want to. I don't want to record more than an hour's content for uh, the listeners. <laughs> <laughs> but thanks for having me.
Thanks to Ray for coming on the podcast and chatting with me. I had a really good time, really interesting guy to talk to. If you want to check out his CD, The World Was Once All Miracle, which all the music from this episode has been taken from, that is out on CD, and the liner notes are really well written, I actually really enjoyed them and they added a lot of context for me, so if you fancy buying the CD, it's well worth it, otherwise it's available on streaming as well. Also in the show notes is a link to iTunes, where you can leave us a review to help us out, feed the algorithm gods with the things they like, give us five stars, all that kind of stuff. Um, And also if you enjoy this episode, maybe share it with someone, tell them what they're missing out on. All right, so we've got a few good guests lined up in the pipeline. I won't spoil it now, but I'll see you next month for some funky new guests.